Welcome to The Quarantine Tapes, a daily podcast from Onassis, L.A. and Dublin. Hosted by Paul Holdengraber, this series chronicles shifting paradigms in the era of social distancing. Hello? Hello, can I please speak with Lisa Lucas? This is Lisa. Lisa, it's Paul, Paul Holdengraber calling you from the quarantine tapes. I'm really so... Hello, Paul. Hello, Lisa. I'm so delighted that you had the time to take this call. Thank you so much for being part of this project. Tell me, first of all, where do I find you and how do I find you and how are you? I'm doing okay. I've been in Los Angeles since the beginning of the pandemic. I actually landed here on March 11th, and when I got off of the plane, um, I got an alert that said that the WHO had declared the pandemic. So I've been here for every minute of it. And 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 what have you been up to in, in the City of Angels? Oh, gosh. Well, staying home like everyone else and trying to, you know, hold down a nonprofit organization. And I got a new job, and I've been trying to just, you know, feel like a human in this. And you haven't been back in, to New York in all this time. I did go home for one week. Right. Because I didn't plan on being out of town. So it's like I packed six days worth of clothes and, you know, probably hadn't cleaned out my fridge. So I, I went home for just a little bit. Now, you, you mentioned the new job. And, of course, we're going to talk about that. Were you, were you at all taken by surprise by the speed at which your new job came about? And, and maybe you can tell our listeners what this new job is, because certainly reading about it, Lisa, first of all, congratulations. And second Thank of you. all, my goodness, what a, <laughs> what a job and how daunting. But we'll get to the daunting part in a moment. I feel daunted. <laughs> so I'd be thrilled to talk about that. But yeah. You know, I had, um, right around the time um, that the George Floyd protests began, I sort of made a commitment that I was going to stay at the National Book Foundation. And I, I think it was that I had decided I really wanted to stay and work in books. And I loved and loved my job. And so it was sort of very interesting to have Regan Arthur give me a call and, and ultimately ask me if I'd wanted to be the publisher of uh, Pantheon and Shockin books underneath the Knopf Doubleday group at Penguin Random House. Um, and while it was really quick, I feel like it was such a pivot, such a change in how I understood myself and how I understood opportunities that were possible that it felt like this agonizing maybe six or seven weeks um, that everything was being discussed, and I was thinking about it and saying, maybe I'll stay, maybe I'll go. And, you know, so it was very quick. It was, you know, I imagine my life in this radically different way now than I did, you know, at the end of May. Um, and by the beginning of July, everything looked different. Um, but it felt very slow, like something happening in slow motion while it was being discussed and taking place. But you said um, you understood yourself differently. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I'm curious about w what that difference is. And I imagine that 
not a small amount of that difference was brought about by this delirious moment we're living through. Yeah, I think there's a few things. I mean, I think isolation lets you think about what's important to you, you know. It makes you go mad too, but yes. Right, totally makes you go mad as well. But it's like, but you have plenty of time, you know, quiet moments to actually just process who you are, you know, what are your values, what matters, you know. Who are you, Lisa? Who are you? Who am I? Um... I mean, I think a foundation work is a huge part of who I am. And I think that what I want is for the, the effort that I make in a professional setting to have some sort of beneficial impact on the world, you know? And I think the big change that I mentioned earlier in, in thinking about who I was were threefold. I think first, I felt really unbound by the moment. I won't be able to stop saying what I believe the truth is from the perspective of a black woman in America. I can't ignore it. And I think so many of us cannot ignore it. And so I felt really confident in being able to express myself in a way that I never had before. I think I'm comfortable with my anger. I'm comfortable... Mm you know, telling the truth, Mm. you know, I'm comfortable sort of saying to people politely and, you know, and, and clearly what I think is inequitable. And I think that's a really big change for so many of us where, you know, there's not the room to actually just have a straightforward conversation about that, which we understand to be factual. This is where we are not present. This is how we are paid less. This is how, you know, all of these systems enforce you know, white supremacy, you know, there's not room to sort of have nuance in conversations about diversity, equity, and inclusion, which are all separate things, Mm. you know? And I, I think that, you know, where do we gain some kind of equity, which has felt like a throwaway word and not really a word that has positioned people of color or people from, you know, that don't come from the Ivy League or you name it, you know, any different kind of measure on which you can exclude I think there has not been any meaningful gesture towards equity. Sure, diversity. You know, there are people from different backgrounds inside of publishing and critical apparatus and bookstores, right? And there are conversations where we are included, but how strongly our voices are considered and whether or not we have the power to actually leverage change from the seats at the table we have earned and been given Um, you know, and I don't mean given as some sort of gift from like the white establishment, but I mean, given in the sense that like like every job you get, someone gives to you. Um, you know, I think that there's a lot of work there. So I felt empowered to be loud and I felt responsible for, for not being silent. I felt important to actually use whatever platform I have to actually just be real about my experiences as a black woman, about what I see as true, um, and to be less afraid of what the consequences are of speaking that truth. I, um, I, I, I really I really love these words you've used, Lisa. Unbound, included, considered, empowered. And this leads me to, to ask you, how do you understand this word in, in the in in the setting you're you're putting your your new position of reckoning? Mm-hmm. How do I understand the word reckoning? How do you understand the word reckoning in in the context of what you you you've been offered and what you will be doing? Right. Well, this is just it's not sustainable. Right. I think part of the reason why it is important for people to be vocal about what is happening and to to continue, you know, fighting for change is because um, it can't hold. 
there are too many people who want to read books that look different from how we imagine the audience for books. And books are so foundational to how we understand the world and how we find information we trust and how we engage, you know, with so many different things. And how we engage it's, even with this moment. I mean, books, yes. I mean, I, I imagine you've been thinking about that as well, but books have been so central to this moment. I mean, I'll just take one example. I mean, there's so many. But the fact that in Italy they sold 65,000 copies of The Plague of Camus. Mm -hmm. Extraordinary. Right. One you we know, trust we, books. We trust books. We turn to them in moments of difficulty as we turn to poetry in moments of great love or great loss. Right. And I think that was the change, you know, in sort of committing myself to books. Right. Not that I wasn't ever committed. I've always loved books and I've loved what I do. But, you know, I think that this is the moment where it went from something that I do now to something that I suspect I'll do forever. Mm. And you'll do very differently, right? I mean, Lisa, one of the extraordinary differences for you, and I've been thinking about that and and um, so so eager to talk to you about it, you've worked for a non-profit, mm -hmm. National Book Foundation, which, you know, you've, you've loved your job and your job has loved you because everybody who has come in touch with the National Book Foundation under your leadership feels the extraordinary energy and enthusiasm you pour into it. But you're going now from a non-profit to a for-profit. Yeah. And, and that was the third change. Right. 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 So okay. after 19 years, and it'll be 20 next year when I leave. We'll, cele um, we'll celebrate. 20 years working at non-profit cultural institutions. And so I've understood myself as a person who lived outside of the marketplace, who pushed, you know, I worked in education. I worked to get young audiences to find value and to see themselves valued by film and filmmakers. That was what I did at Tribeca for years. And I worked in theater companies and I worked, you know, for youth media organizations and then the National Book Foundation and Guernica. And these were all places, you know, that were nonprofit institutions. That's 20 years two decades of my life. Right. And I think that it's one of the things that lets me sleep at night. Right. But I have always worked, not for money, but because I wanted to make a change. And I think I finally, and I once had a fight with my father, and he said, you should sell out, Lisa, you should sell out. You know, you need to make more money. You should go and work for a corporation. And it was one of the biggest fights we ever had. Because I said, why? Why would I do that? You were a musician. You did whatever you wanted. You know, you didn't finish high school. You didn't go to college. You played the guitar because you knew what you wanted to do. And nobody believed that it was a viable career path for you when you were young. And you made your own way and you did what you wanted. So why shouldn't I? And he's gone now. But it's so funny to sort of find myself taking a position at a, you know, corporation, global corporation, and not feel the feelings of selling out that I thought I might feel. Because ultimately, I had to think about what was my value? Am I still capable of making change and doing good in the world in this space? And I think the answer is absolutely. And I can probably do more helping to shape the culture than I can reacting to it because of the profound inequities that we find inside of all of our cultural art forms, inside of theater and music and dance and film and books, all of it. And, you know, if I can work to support a more equitable industry and to, to offer my labor towards that end, I don't know that it feels different than working at the foundation we're working at Tribeca because it's still about inclusion. It's still about building audiences. It's still about justice. You've always 
it's remarkable to me. You've always brought in your father um, in so many different moments and in so many different contexts. And I wonder, with the story you told about your father, do you think he he was pushing you in the direction you've now chosen? I don't. In the end, I don't think he was. Mm. You know, he wouldn't, obviously, he wasn't here for this moment. But I think that he really felt like I had found my footing when I ended up at the National Book Foundation. So I don't think that, you know, I think he would have been very pleased and supportive. And he always was ultimately very pleased and supportive by anything that I did. But he, I think, um, understood finally what my heart was professionally, which mm. was change, which was empowering you know, young people or communities or readers. You know, I grew up with art. I grew up with access to beautiful art. I was enriched by it. I was changed by it. And I want that for everyone. I want not just the opportunity to hold or have a book, but the emotional capacity you receive a book to believe that that book is for them. You know, I so love, I so loved in preparing to speak with you, Lisa, reading about your own home and growing up with your parents who always had black authors prominently displayed in their living room. And I'm wondering mm -hmm. what was the effect for you of seeing those books put forward in that way? I don't even know if it was just the books. You know, I grew up in black homes. I grew up around black people who loved being black and mm, loved mm. black culture. And with, you know, godparents and aunties and uncles and cousins who all loved being black. So I just grew up believing that our stories were valuable, period. I didn't grow up believing that other stories were less valuable. You know, I mean, my mother is the one who put me, you know, onto Edith Wharton. And The House of Mirth remains one of my favorite books ever. But it was, you know, it, it was equal. Right. You know, our story sat next to all of these people who are canonized. Right. You know, it's interesting to me that you were using the, the, the word change and that in a way, even though you're changing jobs, as it were, you're still an, a, a, an engine for change. And yet now, not really and yet, but now you're coming into an organization, both uh, both a larger organization and the shock and imprint that has a very mm -hmm. long and and noble in some way tradition. And I mm -hmm. think particularly of Shocken, which is a smaller entity of the two that you're joining. I'm wondering what 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 um, as you as you begin imagining the kinds of books you will be publishing, what kind of books you imagine you could publish in a in in a in an imprint that you know has Martin Buber and Elie Wiesel and Walter mm -hmm. Benjamin, who you know I discovered mostly in this country through uh, through the shock and imprint and Ben right. Katcher and Aaron Appelfeld and Sholem mm -hmm. Alechem and uh, Gershem Sholem and uh, many other yeah. Sholems. I'm just, I'm just wondering, <laughs> I'm just wondering, you know, what is Lisa Lucas thinking about uh, with such an imprint? print and such a, you know, such a, one could say, heady and heavy um, tradition. Yeah, I mean, I think we're in a heavy time. We you know, are. these Oof. imprints, both Pantheon and Shocken, you know, were, were founded by refugees from Europe during World War II. And I think that it was a moment of robust, radical thought mm. that expressed through fiction and poetry and, you know, cultural studies and oral histories and writing about faith and justice, right? Hannah Arendt was one of Shockin's editors. And um, 
I think I've been quite shy about sort of talking about what will publish and what will change. Because again, I don't start until January and there's an editorial staff and I don't want to make these kinds of decisions without really, really, really memorizing and understanding the history. But what I can say is that I think we're in a moment that is also ripe and ready for radical thought. Right. And it's totally different. Right. Mm. It's totally different right now. But we know that anti-Semitism still exists. We know that there's brilliant Jewish thinking and writing that is being published into the world. Right. We know that, you know, there's extraordinary graphic work, which is also part of Pantheon's history. We know, you know, that Doug Turkle's oral histories about the Great Depression and about working in America and about Mm. class and about place are all extraordinarily important. We know how valuable Hannah Arendt's writing is. We know how important Ellie Wiesel is. And so I think what the question, I don't have an answer for you, but the question is, Much better, by what the way. would that look like in 2020? Right. And the job is to work with all of the brilliant people that are there mm. and that will come there over time to really think about how to build an imprint for today that does the same work that's so desperately needed to get done in 1940 something. And you know, I began remember when we when we began our conversation, I used the word daunting, and you said, mm-hmm. "Oh, I, I can talk about that. I can talk about that." And one of the th- <laughs> and one of the things, Lisa, that struck me when I read about the job, and I thought, "My goodness, I'm I'm so very pleased." I was also immediately thinking, "Is Lisa worried by the expectations that are being put on her?" I suppose. I suppose not too, though. I mean, it's a oh, look. Okay. You know, in terms of, you know, literary prizes in the United States, in the world, right? You know, when I look at the New York Times and they comp us with the Booker Prize and the Nobel Prize and the Prix Goncourt and the Pulitzer, you know, that must have been daunting too. But I don't think I really felt that way. I just wanted to do the work. I, under- I respect the tradition. I am a consumer of the work. And I feel like I have a, an extraordinary and hopefully not misguided faith in both the reader and the potential reader. And I think if you just believe and you are thoughtful about the choices that you make and, and, and that there's actually real intention behind that which you publish, it's not scary. I don't know if I'll be great or if I'll be mediocre or, or what, right? But I know that I'm not scared to try. I'm not. Try, I'm not scared to try with everything I've got. I can't wait. Actually, um, you, you, you've said, um, and it's such an interesting uh, phrase. You've said that the hope is to bring a million people behind you. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? Well, I think it means. I think one of my feelings has always been that I think part of our diversity, equity, inclusion issue within the publishing community is one decision makers making decisions that do not include the other from a position of sort of, you know, sort of a majority white industry. Mm. Um, But I also think that the effect that that has on readers, young people who might want to work in an industry, the chilling effect of feeling unwelcome means that people don't think I want to grow up and be an editor. I want to grow up and work at Simon & Schuster or Penguin Random House or Macmillan or FSG, right? They don't have that dream because it's already closed. That's like a sundown town, man. Don't go there. And so I think the idea of bringing a million people behind you is, of course, about hiring practices and equity, but it's also just about modeling that there is a place for us, about staking a place for us. 
And that might look like an invitation to people who are absolutely different from me. Mm. But just to say that it doesn't have to look the way that it always has. No. And, and, and in fact, we, we could say that this whole notion of going back to normal is truly mm-hmm. problematic because normal, right. norm, I mean, it's normal like, is what got us to this moment that feeds It's terrible. Like, yeah. We miss it so much, but it was a mess. <laughs> no kidding. You and, know, I mean, it's like I missed it before. I find myself saying, gosh, I wish it was like it was before. But, you know, I, the longer this goes on, the more you think, God, this is, this is horrific. And it's one, certainly the most unpleasant thing that's happened to almost all of us, you know, as a collective, you know, nation world but um but it, it's not possible to go back it's just not it was a, it was a it was a flawed world without really you know mentioning because you, as you said you'll have a whole group of people you'll be you'll be speaking to but what are the kinds of books in a sense that you haven't found on the shelves that you've been missing and that now in your new role which is a role where you will have a certain amount of authority to to choose. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You will you will because I I, I I can imagine you, Lisa. You know, in so many bookstores, including in Los Angeles, I hope. You know, going mm-hmm. through the shelves and saying, "Great, but where is?" And I'm not even talking right. about where is a particular writer, but how come? But where is the thing? Yeah, exactly. Right, where are there exactly. people? You know, I mean. Like, to start with, you know, and it's like, and this is like a real, you know, this is not about, you know, being a publisher that's just about diversity, right? This is about all kinds of, you know, writing, all different types of people. This is a global initiative. I mean, I think some of the things that I think of, I once interviewed um, an author um, who had won the pre-Femina for a book called Moon Glow, Haitian Woman, one of the, you know, best known Haitian novelists. And I had never heard of her name. Never. How do you win the pre-Femina and not end up for four years in translation in the United States? There's so much from the Francophonie that we don't read. There's so much global writing that can actually give us texture and color about this whole big, wide world that we do not read. And so perhaps it's not that the books don't exist. Of course they do. They already do exist. Perhaps it's about how they reach us. That might be more important to me almost even than the book that doesn't exist. How do you publish these things well? How do you demonstrate value around international writing? That's one thing that I think is quite important. I think, you know, being Latino or Latinx is not a monolith. Being black is not a monolith. Being queer, not one thing. So where is the variety? I could tell you about six, and I've said this a thousand times before, but I could tell you about every kind of Park Post divorce that I've read about in literature, every single kind, every single way. You know, two moms, two dads, you know, somebody who's successful, somebody who's not, you know, you name it. I've, I've read that story. I know what it is to, to get divorced if you're a white couple in your middle 30s or middle 40s or middle 50s in Park Slope, Brooklyn. I've read that book, every single iteration of that book. But when I think about our body of literature written by Latinx writers or our body of literature by black writers, we are only now just starting to see the very tip of the iceberg of all of the ways that we live and think and exist and imagine. And so what is missed? What, you know, anything that we haven't seen that is beautifully rendered is interesting to me. You know, I think, you know, which perspectives do we not hear from? I think that there's a real appetite for the things that we have been denied. And I think that there's a real brilliance to so many writers who are coming up right now. And so, I mean, it's like, I don't mean to skirt the question. You're not, you're not. 
You're, you, you really but, I, you know, I think that I'm right now looking, and when I go to a bookstore or look at a shelf right now, I'm saying, is that Pantheon? Is that shocking? Is that Pantheon? Is that shocking? And so I'm still in the process of, of looking course. at books and saying, is this that? This is, and this isn't in my imagination. And I think that, you know, over some time, I think that that will start to crystallize. And then the people that I work with will be able to sort of really crystal, but they have the history. Yeah. Errol McDonald, 40 years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, Alfie Carper, years and years. Dan, Frank. Yeah, no. I mean, this is an extraordinary wealth of yeah. information. And one of the things I love about it is that they are, they are like we do in nonprofits, they are carrying the institutional memory. They're, they're ready also, probably. Mm-hmm. They're ready for Yeah, the, I think they're, they're ready, excited. They're ready for this moment. One very quick question before I, before sadly we need to leave nearly, which yeah. is, is um, translation part of your portfolio? Oh my goodness, absolutely. That's, that's what I was saying about that, the international. That's book. so absolutely. great. That's so great because you, you, mm-hmm. you know as well as I do uh, just how 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 lacking that is. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I can't remember, but you probably do. It's two, three percent of books translated. I mean, it's so, mm-hmm. so small and and I think that that is so important. When you brought up translation before, I was hoping that right. would be part of your of oh, your portfolio. Absolutely, thank, it's thank, hugely exciting. Thank God, thank God. The list is so broad, yeah, and no. that's why it was appealing. Fiction, yeah. nonfiction, translated literature, poetry, graphic novels. You know, I mean, it's extraordinary because you have such a such an extraordinary canvas and such an extraordinary history to build from. I can't not ask you about this moment because I watched it again yesterday, but I just want you to reflect on it for a minute. This extraordinary moment, Lisa, of John Lewis at the National Book Awards. Yeah. Even the way way you say, yeah. Tell us about how it felt then and really how it feels now thinking about that. I was terrified that night. It was my first National Book Award. I remember. 2016, the election had just happened. It was a very tense moment. And um, that night, you know, I didn't know if I could pull it off. I had never done so before. And so I was, you know, sort of satisfied that everybody was sitting in their seats and had a meal in front of them. And then John Lewis wins. And Ibram X. Kendi wins. And Colson Whitehead wins. And it was just extraordinary. It was, you know, watching John Lewis cry on that stage and have come so far from a library that wouldn't let him in because he was black to standing on the National Book Award stage receiving one of the highest literary honors you can get. And to see how that moved him was both really beautiful and also just so painful. Mm. Because for what? For what? What was it worth to deny us so many centuries of access? You know, what could we have given if it hadn't been so hard? And so I see John Lewis there deserving and wonderful and emotional and proud. And you think of him and you feel great. You know, what a wonderful thing to be a part of. But then you think about everyone who just wasn't able to be him. How many young people weren't allowed to go to the library and didn't find a way around and didn't find a way, you know, through the back door or through the side door or through, you know, their own leadership. So many people aren't a part of this tradition, this grand tradition of literature, letters, for no reason at all, except for hate. And it was both a real rallying moment to say, what can I do? Because we still are denied access in so many different ways to try and create a net, the best net I can create. And I'm only one girl, and I can only create so much of a net. But what kind of net can I create to catch as many people as I can who should have the opportunity 
to be able to have a book. And that was, I think, as an opening moment to my time at the National Book Foundation, really reinforcing of what I believed in and what was valuable and why access to books matters as much as celebrating ones that are quite good. Lisa, what a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, Always. I really, really, really wish you well. And I can't wait. I can't wait to see to see the how you plot and plan magic. I'm going to try to do you proud. You, I, you, you, you already are. Thank you so much, and take care Thank of yourself. Thank you. And you too. Stay safe. Okay. You too. Take care. Bye, Paul. To support this show and Dublab's progressive programming, go to dublab.com/support. 